Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show I talk to one of the stars of the great new Irish movie on Colleen Kewen, Andrew Bennett, about his role in the lauded new movie. The Norwegian director Iskal Vakt on his incredibly creepy new movie The Innocence. Plus, Pat Fitzpatrick, a.k.a. Reggie from the Black Rock Road, chats to me about his favourite movie. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. A good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. I have a cold, a summer cold, I guess is what you'd call it. So I'm just telling you that as a way of apologising for a slightly nasal voice you may detect. Uh, It's not the other thing. I've tested myself at all. Just a cold. I don't think I've had a cold in two years, so maybe that's quite telling, given all that's been going on. Now, occasionally people bemoan the fact that I occasionally, and it's only occasionally mentioned soccer and my lifelong fandom of Everton Football Club. And I've had to mention it more lately because we've been in serious peril. So I just quickly have to say hallelujah in case you don't know. And you probably don't care, but bear with me. This will only take 30 seconds on Thursday night in Goodison Park. Everton successfully maintained their status as a Premier League club by beating Crystal Palace 3-2 in possibly the best game of football I've ever watched as an Everton fan. Uh, Hallelujah. That's all I'm going to say. We'll move on. Uh, And I want to say a special hello to anyone out there who's picking up a takeaway as they're listening to this on the radio. And why am I saying that? Because it occurs to me, most people who say to me, or certainly a lot of people say to me, who listen to this show on the radio, they listen when they're going out to pick up their takeaway on a Saturday night. Seriously, like in the space of a week, I've had about three people say that to me and I've heard that before. You know, a dentist said it to me a while ago. Dentists see takeaways too. So a special hello to all of you out there in your cars, you know, going out for your chicken chow mein or whatever it is you're getting takeaway, you know, tofu-infused brioche rolls, I don't know, whatever you get in the takeaway. Hats off to you. Treat yourself. It's Saturday night. Get some MSG on board. Now, I'm going to talk to you about TV as I always do. I have to be, you know, careful is the wrong word. Derry Girls finished up. It's probably the big TV event of the week. And I got into troubles overstating it, but many moons ago, I suggested that I think Derry Girls was as great as I'd been led to believe it would be. And it caused me all sorts of problems. And I haven't really talked about it since. But I have to say the finale, which was on this week, an hour-long special, was a pretty great piece of TV. And if you've seen it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The way they wound in the signing of the Good Friday Agreement and the way they ended that show. It was a masterclass in in a TV ending. It really was. And I, I thought it was quite profound. So, and there was a cameo of, of Chelsea Clinton, in case you haven't heard, which was brilliantly done as well. So hats off to Derry Girls. Now, now the other big TV event of the week was this. Do you write other stuff, Francis? Like other forms, prose? No. Why not? Um, 
I, I, I like the impermanence of it, and like the performance thing. I feel a bit sick when I think about it lasting forever. That's so funny because I always thought of writing as about some sort of desire for permanence. I feel like when I'm writing, I'm trying to get clarity, and then when I do, I want to keep it. I, no, I, I think I'm trying for that, but um, it, it, it just doesn't feel possible. True. Or, or maybe I don't want to package it for people to own. Francis is a communist. Oh. Thanks, Bobby. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, books understood as commodities? Maybe, in a sense. It depends. I mean, obviously, the really good ones are more than that. The rest of us are just grinding it out on the production line. Now, that is a clip from Conversation with Friends, the highly anticipated TV adaptation of Sally Rooney's debut novel, Conversation with Friends. It's highly anticipated because the previous adaptation, Normal People, was whew, such a big TV event. Again, Lenny Abrahamson is back at the helm directing. Mark O'Halloran wrote the script, and of course, they worked together on Garage and Adam and Paul. What's going on in this, it follows two kind of couples, Francis and Bob. Bobby Francis is played by Alison Oliver and they were in a relationship together these two girls and they're now kind of performance poets who meet an older couple they're not that old I think they're in their early 30s uh, Melissa and Nick played by Jemina Kirk and Joe Alwyn the English actor from Kent and they begin a relationship a friendly relationship and maybe more is all I'll say and so far the reviews have been lukewarm, I think it's fair to say. Uh, I don't think it was ever going to be, you know, as, as as big a thing as normal people was. Normal people happened during lockdown. It was a surprise hit in a way just because it went global. So this is probably a slightly overdetermined TV event. It was always going to have feet of clay. That said, I watched three episodes of this and I've really enjoyed it so far. It's It's kind of fascinating to see where this foursome is going to go. Uh, the only thing I thought was a bit strange was Nick, played by Joe Alwyn, who I mentioned. Uh, I, I thought he was meant to be Australian, but apparently he's, he's meant to be South Dublin. His accent is is just bizarre in it. Uh, but that aside, I, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I've said this to you before about TV shows set in Dublin. I hate it when they overgrime it, like make Dublin look seedy and crime ridden or they make it look polished whereas this looked great just the Dublin we all know and mostly love I thought it looked perfect and that's a big hit with me so I, I've enjoyed conversation with friends the first three episodes I know two were on the TV during the week let me know if you might have watched it and, and what you've been making of it so far but uh, I'm cautiously optimistic it's it's 12 and they're all about 25 to 30 minutes so it's a very similar pattern to normal people it's uh I think people were expecting more sex in it you know uh I've been fine with the level of sex so far, but I think they've said there's going to be more. So, you know, if that's your thing, there's more coming, it seems. And it's conversations with friends, as in plural. I kept saying conversation, but it's conversations. And indeed, there are many conversations in the show. And then just very quickly, in in the wider world of TV and movies, I thought it was wonderful. Cannes started this week. I've never been. I... I I've only read about it. It seems like an interesting kind of thing to go to. Maybe someday I'll be sent, if you're listening, 
the powers that be in news talk. But uh, it was great to see President Zelensky of the Ukraine gave an address to Cannes this week and he gave a brilliant speech, which you should look back on. And this is a guy, you know, who was an actor. So for him to talk about the power of cinema in times of crisis, it has some weight to it. And he quoted Apocalypse Now and, of course, The Great Dictator. And he said, we have to win this victory and we need cinema to ensure that this end is always on the side of freedom. I'm sure that the dictator will lose. We will win this war. Glory to Ukraine. Well said, Mr. Zelensky. Now, in a completely unrelated matter, we have a competition this week. We are giving you merch merchandise uh, from the movie Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness which is in cinemas now I'm not going to lie to you Mark Ryle didn't like it very much I didn't see it but hey who couldn't do with some free merch which includes things like a coaster badges and a t-shirt amongst other things so if you would like to win some Doctor Strange merchandise simply text the word Doctor Strange to 53106 or email the words Dr. Strange to screentime at newstalk.com and Anne-Marie Kane will pick a winner. Now, it's rare that we revisit a film a week after its release if we've already reviewed it and talked about it. However, as me and Mark Ryle raved about the much-talked-about on Colleen Kuhn, uh, as much as we did, I was keen to return to it. In case you haven't heard, on Colleen Kuhn is getting rave reviews from just about everyone who's seen it. It's adapted from Foster, a short story by Claire Keegan. It centres on a nine-year-old played brilliantly by Catherine Clinch, a shy and withdrawn child who receives scant attention or affection from her family and is ruled by a pretty uncaring patriarch. When she's sent to spend the summer with her aunt, played by Kerry Crowley, and her husband, Sean, played by Andrew Bennett, she comes out of her shell, blossoming in their care, especially when Sean's initial aloofness fades. Now, as I say, we don't usually do a second week on a movie, but I was very keen to do it this week, particularly because the man who plays Sean, Andrew Bennett, is in studio with me. Hello, Andrew. How are you? How are you, John? Listen... Have you been, I mean, you were in the thing, so you know how good it is. But, you know, you go away and you film this and then you maybe move on to the next thing and get another gig and all. And you made it a while ago. Have you been surprised by the love this movie is getting? Yeah, utterly. I mean, it, uh, I think we all thought it was good. Yeah. Um, but uh, I don't think anybody expected it to do as well as it's doing. Um, yeah. And not just here. It's only got released here. Last Friday. I think it was last Friday. Yeah. yeah. And just the amount of people from your history, you know, people you were in school with, you okay. know, old teachers, and it's amazing the people who've been in touch. And I don't think anybody expected it to be quite that. You know? Yeah, and five-star reviews everywhere. Apparently, you know? yeah. Um, uh, you know, it's been released in England as well. It did very mm. well in, in Germany, in Berlin, yeah. at the festival there, which is kind of amazing. It's it, it was a big thrill to sit in an audience of Germans yeah. and to hear them getting I mean there aren't a lot of laughs in the piece no they got the few laughs that there are and they made those kind of ooing and eyeing noises whenever you know any anything was revealed you know it's a so that's been just extraordinary and the fact that it's in Irish one doesn't want to be too nationalist about it but it's a real thrill to think that there's an Irish film in Piccadilly Circus you know? absolutely and you know I was saying last week on the show that we have a not you, but a lot of us have this strange relationship with Irish. And we're almost annoyed by it now because we spent 14 years sure. doing it and we can't speak any of it. But lately, when I watched Iraq, another great Irish yeah, movie, yeah. Dinan, and now this, 
we're so blown away by actually how much Irish we actually know and it's a real and it's not waving the flag it's just simply a real pleasure to watch a movie in Irish that carries you along this much beautifully yeah Yeah. and and with Uncolleen Kuhn there isn't too much Irish in it like I mean I'm afraid that people would be put off and going I just won't know what's going on but the you know the dialogue is very sparse yeah you're not going to be you know reading the subtitles and missing what's going on it's in little short shots yeah uh, and it's beautiful Irish it's Waterford Irish okay that, uh, yes because that's where it's set and all, yeah. it, it's set in Waterford yeah um, the original novella I think is set in Wicklow but because um, Colin Barraid and his wife Cleona the producer and the director because they're big Irish language enthusiasts yeah. They were looking for a thing to make in Irish, and it just has suited it so well. You know? Yeah, it's, it really uh, has. It's unimaginable in English. It, it kind of, yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? Yeah. Like you were saying about the Cots, the girl's father, yeah. and you were saying that you said bad things about him, and I'm very aware that Michael Patrick, the man who plays the father, would not like to hear you saying that he's he's uncaring. He's somebody under pressure, you know. Mm. Uh, he's he's not a bad guy. He's just somebody who has too many children and not enough money. You Th- know? That, that's interesting. Now, we, we won't get into a big philosophical no, no, argument sure. about it, but you see, I, 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 thought him, I thought of him as uncaring, but you see him not, no, I just think, under pressure. I think it's one of my favourite lines in the thing is actually in, in English, when he has dropped off the kids to us, yeah. to, to Eileen and Sean Kinsella, and they're kind of a little bit too perfect in a way. You know, everything's <laughs> so nice, it's all lovely, and the yeah. sun shines when you're in their house and yeah. all of this thing. And he's leaving... And he, he's in the car and he just, he says, thanks, no. And then he turns to his daughter, to Koch, the central yeah. character, and he says, try not to fall into the fire, you. <laughs> but there's kind of love in it, you know. Yeah. It's just he, you know, to, to paint him as the bad guy is kind of... Okay. I don't think there are any bad guys. Yeah, there, really, yeah, you know? yeah. Well, that, that, that's yeah. very interesting. But I want to get to your character, Sean. Yeah. When we reviewed it last week, my resident critic, a guy called Mark Ryle, who loved it as well, we only gave it four stars. I'm feeling bad uh, now. You're sitting in front of me. It should have been five, you know? But as Mark said, uh, not every child deserves a biscuit. But anyway, <laughs> maybe it should have been five stars. But what he said, and I thought this was brilliant, is that your character, Sean, is a tough nut to crack. And we mean that as a compliment because he presents, first of all, almost like a stage Irish distant father yeah. and then what happens to your character is absolutely beautiful and maybe the most beautiful relationship in it yeah. did you get that as straight totally. away so, I mean uh, you were saying you know in your introduction you were saying that Koch blossoms under our care mm. but in actual fact we blossom under her care in yeah. lots of ways we have give anything away but myself and my wife Eileen played by Carrie Crowley brilliant uh we've gone through a horrible trauma. And at the beginning of the film, when you meet us, our hearts are closing. You said a tough nut to crack. Mm. Well, our shell is closing around our hearts. The yeah. way people do, if you've been hurt too much, yeah. you, you just close your heart. And so their hearts are are not quite closed when this little ray of light arrives into yeah. their summer and opens yeah. their hearts again. So uh, that's the joy, certainly from point of view of playing Sean, that's the yeah. joy of, of the piece. You know? And what I loved as well is there were moments... You hear me telling you why I loved your movie. Right. You know all about it. But there were moments when, let's say, there's a shadow near a bedroom door. And yes. I thought, I know yeah. what's going to happen here. Yeah. And I just, I'm not in the mood for this. Sure. And it's it goes somewhere else. And I'm really keen not to give spoilers, sure, but it's yeah. such a clever act of storytelling yeah. because there is a certain dread is overstating it but there's a fear what's going to happen to this sure. girl in this new house and it goes somewhere completely different yeah. well I think that one of the cleverest things about it uh, and I think this is down to well the original piece you know Foster mm. the yeah. Claire Keegan's novella but Colin Barraid 
it's a very slow film. So I've seen it a load of times now. And every <laughs> yes. time I go, oh, lads, come on, get onto it. Like you're boring, you're losing them. <laughs> and it's so clever. He forces yeah. you to forget about your outside life. The first five minutes, you're slowing down mm. to its pace. And once you do that, you notice everything. There's no dead, like Kate McCullough, the cinematographer, mm. is a woman who's very good at her job. She she may be a painter. I mean, it's really yeah, as good as it's that. it's beautiful. And once you slow down, there is just so much to enjoy in it. Uh, and you don't have, okay, I was a 15-year-old on a farm in 1981, which is when it's set. But I don't think you even have to be that. You no. just, there's always something going on. It also, and we're veering very close to spoiler territory, but we won't because okay. we'll do it very carefully. Right. But I think if we did one of these holisticals of, you know, the top 10 best Irish movie endings of all time, that's going to be fighting for first place. The ending, without saying anything though, sure, it is absolutely beautiful. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. It's beautiful in the novella. I, mm. I really do encourage you to. If, yeah, have you I read it. No, do. Oh, I will. I mean, really, yeah. truly, and it won't. It's funny having read it before the film was made, and now to reread it with the film, it's it's hard to remember what you thought. Wow. But that okay. end scene is in the novella, and I think in the film as yeah. well. I think we've. I think Colm and the whole crew have done such an amazing job on it. It is very uh, striking. I was talking Absolutely. to my, my 89 year old aunt last night. Okay. And she said, We couldn't leave the cinema for ages because we were crying. Mission, <laughs> mission accomplished, <laughs> yeah. you know. But let's not, you were thanking, you were saying all these people who did a great job at the ending. You are brilliant in well, that last moment as well. So listen, that is, you know, again, as I said last week, a massive thumbs up for that movie. It, it is a work of beauty. Let me ask you, I was going through your CV and uh, it's almost not an exaggeration to say you appear to have been in every Irish television show and movie of the last 20 years. What Loads of them. Love, Hate, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The General, yeah. Garage, uh, <laughs> It Goes On and On, yeah. A Moon Boy. I mean, have you been busy for the last 20 years? I, I've been very lucky all along. Yeah. Um, like those would be, I'd be a day player. I'm, I know. I'm a theatre actor. Yes, of course. As a theatre actor, you do occasionally get, you know, bits and pieces. Yeah. But this is the first time that I've ever done a, a you know... A, a, a main a, player. Yes, where you're on every day and all that. And what a way to... Is theatre still your first love then? Yeah, I suppose it is, yeah. yeah. I mean, this was such a... This was like a theatre gig. Right. Because we were close... We were in lockdown when we were filming. Yeah. So we were... Uh, there was, was a sort of... Uh, gratitude from everybody yeah. working on it because yeah. the whole world was closed. Nobody had a job. Yeah. And here was us with a job. Yeah. This fabulous job. Yeah. And every morning, Dennis Smirnoff, the driver, would collect me at six o'clock and we'd drive out to County Meath. His Mead. name's Smirnoff? Yeah, yeah, he's from oh. Lithuania. Oh, yeah, wow, yeah. okay. But, uh, but we would drive out to County Meath mm. and suddenly you're in this beautiful summer mm. in 1981. Yeah, yeah. And it was just stunning. It felt like a play. Yeah, uh, wow. There was no... Uh, my experience of film is that as a day player, you do a lot of hanging around. Mm. And in this, there just wasn't. You were just all the time mm. at it, you know. I think we haven't mentioned is the central performance of Catherine Clinch, yes. which is so extraordinary. Yeah, incredible, yeah. incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know what to say about it, really. It's it's just know brilliant, that. you know. She's, uh, she has this innate... Uh, I've heard loads of words. People have said grace and... Reserve is the wrong word because mm. it gives the impression that of coldness and there's, there's nothing cold about the girl. She has this dignity, I think, is what it is. And mm. it's something that she just has. And if you and you were struck it, by that when you first met oh, her. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, because you were saying, but, you know, there's the relationship between on Kinsaloch and Koj. And at the beginning, they're shy of each other mm. and then they have to go through this mm. very deep relationship. Yeah. And I was thinking, as the, you know, 
supposed adult and yes. professional actor and whatever, that I maybe should I, you know, be you know come on with a charm offensive and yeah. make her love me kind of thing. <laughs> when you meet Catherine Clinch, you just go, no, that's not going to work. She's too dignified. She has, and, and I, I mean, if she was here, I know that she would be at pains to say how much, how hard she worked on it. Like it costs her, sure. but she has this innate thing that's quite extraordinary. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, it's unusual I was asking you about your career and you brought it back to the movie it's, you're not like a normal actor who always wants to talk about themselves let me ask you finally then one thing that strikes me about you is that you have the most wonderful timorous gorgeous voice you really do and it's, it's a chicken and egg thing but did the have, has that been said to you all your life was yeah. it not any way did that lead you into acting uh, no I, I just did plays in school and okay. I didn't really want to do anything else but when I was younger mm. I, I wanted to be good looking Okay, you know to get work <laughs> I just thought, God, if only I was as good looking as that fellow. And as you get older, you go, it's fine not being good looking. You can Once you have a deep voice, you can get away with blue murder, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I might put that on my toilet oh, roll. No, once totally. you have a deep voice, you get away with blue murder. <laughs> well, listen, on Colleen Kuhn, I keep going to mispronounce it. It's like the Irish block of me mispronounces Kuhn a lot. It's, but I am saying that. Right. Well, funny enough, I think that I didn't know. I'm not a, a native Irish speaker. And I was going, you know, we say... On Shan Van Vuch. Yes. And I go, why isn't there a Shevu? Why isn't it on Colleen Hewn? It's because Colleen is a masculine noun. Okay, right. Did you know that? I no, know. no, Girl no. Girl is a masculine not. noun in Irish. Okay. That's why there's no Shevus in it. Okay, very good. It is a wonderful movie. You are wonderful in it, as is Carrie Crowley and as is the aforementioned Catherine Clinch. Last week, we urged people to go and see it. I'm doubling down on that this week. Andrew Bennett is one of the stars of it, playing the aforementioned dad of sorts, and he's absolutely wonderful in it. Thanks for coming in, Andrew. Gentlemen, thanks, John. Up next, the director of a very creepy and intriguing new movie, The Innocents. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now, I watched a fantastic movie on Sunday night this week called The Innocence. It's about four children living in a Norwegian apartment block. Two sisters, one of whom is on the autism spectrum and is practically non-verbal, certainly when the movie begins. All four of the children figure out that they can communicate telepathically and all of them have their own traumas in their own home lives. The four children's relationship, though, takes a dark and sometimes horror-infused turn when one of the children in particular realises that the mental powers he has can do all sorts of things and not for good at times. It's a highly unusual movie. It's deeply uncomfortable at times, but it is absolutely gripping. And unlike most of the things you're going to see in the multiplex anytime soon, it is in select cinemas from Friday. It has been going gangbusters all over the world, not least in Cannes, and has won all sorts of awards. It's written and directed by the Norwegian writer and director Iskal Fucht, who was nominated for an Oscar last year for co-writing The Worst Person in the World, I suppose that arthouse rom-com which we gave favourable reviews to last year. And he joins me now to talk about The Innocence. Hello, Iskal. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Very well. So as I mentioned, I was deeply taken by the movie. And, you know, as a father of three, we were chatting before we came on about kids. You know, kids being mean and nasty and downright cruel and savage is a deeply scary thing at times. So I, I just have to ask, and I'm sure you've been asked this a lot, but for the benefit of our listeners, where did the idea of this come to you? Well, if I go way back... Uh... And people get the wrong idea when I say this. Uh, it started with my kids. <laughs> with uh, I'll indulge with, you for a minute. 
Yeah, with me, uh, you know, I, I, I was never curious about childhood until I became a father. And when I had kids of my own, I, I suddenly uh, was reminded how how different it is to be a child and to be an adult, how, how radically different it is. You know, they, mm-hmm. they experience the world in, in, in another way. And, uh, and I became more and more curious about that secret world of childhood. And I think that was the, the start of it. And, and the first idea I had was about the magic of childhood, you know? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a horror thing or a scary thing, but it was about a group of children playing together. And while they were playing, something inexplicable or, or magical would happen. And they mm-hmm. would just go along with it like it was just part of their game. And then they would go home, sit down in front of the television or at the dinner table in their respective homes, and that magic wouldn't be there. And you would think it was their imagination, even though it felt real. And I thought, hmm, maybe it would be interesting if that magic was real in the context of a film. And and that's Mm. where it started. Okay, fascinating. And I think I heard you say something about, you know, when you observe kids, you were taken by the fact that the way they play together and talk together is very different when they're around adults. And I think that's a key to this. That was probably a way into the story for you as well, wasn't it? That they're just, they're different when they're with their own, like us all, I guess. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I guess you have that experience. I mean, most parents have of 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 getting your kids at kindergarten or at school, and you get a chance to observe them before they see you. Mm. And they're running around with their friends, or they're doing something else, and you just feel there's something different. You know, they're mm. not like that when they're with me. Yeah. They're not like that at home. It's just a subtle thing, but you feel the change when they see you and they go, hey, dad, they snap back into that person, you know, but you yeah. you just you're reminded that they live another life out there yeah. and you're not part of that. Yeah. One of the things and I know people have been saying this to you since the film has been out there, but it's rare to see. We don't see much on screen kids being nasty uh, because I guess it's a taboo of sorts, you know, that we don't like seeing kids do bad things. And as this movie goes on, one child in particular does pretty awful things. Uh, Have you been surprised by just how shocking people have found some of the movie? Yes, I have. I mean, I uh, of course I knew I would that parts of the movie would go into the kind of horror kind of territory but compared to horror films there's very little gore there's very little violence uh, but people react very strongly to it i mean not everyone some are just like oh cool movie man (laughs) but but some people they're just shook to the core by it so so and that surprised me i didn't Mm. know that would be uh, to that degree, you know? Yeah. Your point is very well made, though. There's no gore and very little blood in this, yet at times the movie is terrifying, and that's what I'd be saying to listeners. You know, this is a movie that shows you there's a lot of ways to do horror, so I salute you for that. Let me ask you about the four kids, because they're all aged between 7 and 11, and the characters are Ida and her sister, Anna, and then we have this soulful kind of girl, Aisha, and then this bullied boy, Ben, and 
he's the boy who gets particularly telepathic, let's say. You know, there's that famous thing, never work with animals and kids and all. But the idea of, you know, uh, a cast of four kids as the prime actors, uh, was that a risk for you? Well, obviously it was. You know, I have this rule uh, when I'm writing to not think about any practical difficulties because you learn so much making movies mm -hmm. and it's very constraining, constricting when you're being uh, trying to be imaginative. So just like, okay, leave that out. And then I kind of wrote myself into a corner of uh, having mm. written a script and fallen in love with this story with four very young children who are in every scene and also a cat you know so yeah. so that's so that's the thing yeah never work with children and animals and then <laughs> luckily i was uh working with a producer who really understood loved the script understood what was at stake and and uh that if just one of these kids weren't top-notch the movie would be just bad yeah so we just uh she understood we needed time and money for the casting so okay. we, we we used over a year finding just the best kids mm. uh, regardless of if they fit the characters in the script or just trying to be open and we just found four amazing kids and i had to modify a little bit in the script for for them to fit but uh they were just amazing you know by the time we had worked with them and gotten to know them first day on on set, they were just uh, yeah, top-notch professional actors. They were more mm. consistent than some of the adults we were working with. But uh, of course, I have to say to any young filmmakers out there, if you can avoid working with a cat, yeah. <laughs> the, the, Kids are fine, yeah. but avoid cats. Yeah, the, the cat was a prima donna, you know. <laughs> the cat, a cat does what a cat wants to do. And yeah. You never feel time passing as when you're like a whole film crew with a camera uh, rolling and we're just waiting for a cat to do something and it just licks its paws and has all the time in the world. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Well, I just the kids are brilliant they really are so so the casting uh really paid off however long it took because they're they're just amazing and and you know the fact that they're so young to be able to carry such weighty material and like you know not that i'm accusing you of mistreating these children far from it but i just mean in terms of what they knew about the story were they fully cognizant of of everything that they were responding to? I mean, in terms of getting them to display these sometimes sad, sometimes angry emotions, did I mean, they had the full script. They knew what they were doing at all times. Well, first we gave the script to their parents before we okay. offered the roles to their kids. Uh, and then I knew from having kids myself that I, I can't give, you know, a seven-year-old or a nine-year-old a uh, script to read, you know? Yeah. That, that, that won't work. And, and, <laughs> sit, and sitting them down and telling them the story from A to Z uh, would not work because after five minutes they will be, like, looking out the window and missing their cell phones, you know, their yeah. kids. Uh, yeah. So so we had to find a good strategy for that. And, uh, and my strategy was just to sit them down individually and tell them about the character they're going to play and what happens to that character and what kind of character it is and what he, the character does. So they would know that before accepting or, or declining the role. And then I just had this rule while we were working for months, you know, 
um, mm. to never uh, to always tell the truth and never trick them. Because yeah. some people trick child actors when they have them on set only a uh, limited time. You can get like real surprise by surprising them. Mm. Or, or, and that was a no-no because, I mean, they, they had such complex roles for, for a long time. Mm-hmm. And if you do that one big surprise and they get great reactions, what, what are they going to feel the next day? You know? Yeah. When you come there and they're like, oh, okay, what's going to happen today? It, it wouldn't be a good working environment. So we just used the time we had to create trust and let them have the, the chance to ask questions and, and, uh, and just got to know each other and got to know the part and the, and the situation. So there would be no surprises and they would feel at ease uh, during shooting. And when, when I mean, of course, we were nervous about those more traumatic, potentially traumatic scenes that were very intense and uh, and kind of overprepared them sometimes because they, they really got it, you know, mm. that they were, it's a difference between, uh, the difference between fiction and reality, their character and themselves. I mean, even the the seven year old who plays Aisha, she was asking uh, questions about the character's motivation. You know, they they mm. they, they were very intelligent about mm-hmm. it and very sensible about it, and they had fun. They loved mm. play acting. Okay, so some of the most intense scenes they had the most fun. Wow, and and, and kids can be like that. They, they they go into that deep state of of. of play acting fear and hyperventilating and you can see it in their eyes and and of course you film only small pieces at a time so i real cut and they suddenly they're just running over to the sound engineer and i'm having fun and doing cartwheels and i have to go no 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 we need another take <laughs> and then they go right back into that sense of dread and fear again because they're kids and kids change emotions so rapidly yeah. Which is what makes them fascinating to watch and film as well. Yeah, well, that that that's a fascinating way way to look at it. And just in terms of Anna's character, as I mentioned, she's. I don't want to give any kind of spoiler, but when we meet her, she's nonverbal. She's on the autism spectrum. Were you keen to in- include that dimension to the story, or was it? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to dismiss it and say it was it was a helpful narrative tool. But I'm just curious about your motivation to have a, a nonverbal character in it. Was there some personal reason, or no? It was. Uh, I was already working on the story about this secret world of childhood when I read uh, an interview with a Norwegian author called Ulag Nilsson. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about, in a very like open-hearted way, about her son, and who is autistic and nonverbal, and about what she labeled regressive autism, mm-hmm. which meant that her son had evolved uh, like in a typical manner, communicating with language and everything, like, an, like, like a normal kid, until he was three or four, and then he had lost his language and retreated into this, for lack of a better word, autistic bubble. Mm-hmm. And for me, as a father with a child approximately the same age, I that was a horror film for me. Yeah, it real just it just haunted me. I mm-hmm. thought about it all the time. I don't know why it struck such a chord, but it just was something so terrible because I mean. I, I'm confident enough uh, in my parenting emotions and skills that I would just 
accept a child that was born nonverbal autistic or with any kind of disability mm-hmm. uh, because you would just love that person as he or she is. But to have communicated, to have that feeling of looking your child in the eye and then suddenly that disappears. Mm-hmm. That That's such a complicated grief. Mm-hmm. And I just kept thinking about it and thinking about it until that one day sitting down at my desk working on my screenplay, I just felt, well, maybe this should be part of my film because yeah. I'm already making a movie about the closed-off world of, of childhood that parents can't access. And what's more closed-off than a non-verbal child? Mm-hmm. And it just fit, you know? And of yeah. course, I, I didn't want it to be just a convenience of the sure. story. So I did a lot of research about it. And even though my movie is a supernatural fable where non-realistic things obviously happens, uh, also with this character, and I can get the chance to tell that story that moved me so much about losing contact with your child. Uh, but uh, also I didn't want it to be like an insult to people who sure. are actually living this. So of course I talked to a lot of parents with nonverbal autistic kids and I did a lot of research and observed nonverbal autistic kids. So I just, so it would be, the details would be right enough to not be, yeah. Uh, tokenistic, I guess. Tokenistic, yeah, that's yeah. a good word. The whole thing uh, just hangs together brilliantly. It really does. I uh, have a few times on this show, many times, not to be name dropping, but I've spoken to Oscar winners and Oscar nominees. And, you know, I, I was saying, and here is a name drop, I was saying to Guillermo del Tormo on my show earlier this year that, you know, say what you want about the Oscars, you know, for all the problems with them. But they bring a light to movies a lot of people wouldn't see. And people hear that a certain movie is an Oscar nominee or an Oscar winner, and it opens up a whole audience to it. And that's that's just a fact. So I, despite all the problems with the Oscars, I have I have a lot of time for the Oscars. And so I'm just wondering, and I always tend to ask people whenever they have any nomination of an Oscar, for your movie, which you co-wrote with your longtime partner, Mr. Trier, uh, The Worst Person in the World, has that changed things for you to, you know, now when, you know, I was sent a bio about you and the first thing on it is Oscar nominee. <laughs> have 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 windows open for you? Have doors open for you? Or do you just go back to the life you always lived? I, I, I've just come back from doing press for the Innocence in the US and I hope that will be my last trip for a while because okay. I just need to go back to my normal life. Yeah, It's, it's been crazy to have these two movies uh, at the same time and the Oscar nomination on top of that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I feel exactly the same way about the Oscars uh, that you do. And I keep uh, I keep watching them and I'm interested in them and mm-hmm. I disagree with them. And yeah. I, I feel they, they give it to the wrong people or some other <laughs> film should be nominated, but they do yeah. really put uh, shine a light on on films, which is great. And uh, and I don't know yet if it was life changing. I just enjoyed the ride, you know, yeah. as a tourist in Hollywood, you know, Norwegian <laughs> language movie nominated for best screenplay. I could just, uh, I mean, even the big Hollywood names thought that was exotic, you know, they were curious yeah. about us, you know, how did you guys end up here? <laughs> <laughs> so it was really uh, a fun trip. Uh, and, uh, and uh, of course, people uh, also in, in Hollywood asked, you know, 
what what am I doing next and yeah. and uh, what are you working on? But I ha- I have nothing, you know. So I have nothing to show. Them. <laughs> I I feel like I'm the worst screenplay and screenwriter in the world because I should have had like four scripts under my arm, passing them out to people <laughs> uh, and uh, handing them out to people. And I don't have anything, so I'm um, uh, I'm just waiting now for people to forget about me so I can have some time to write. Okay, okay. Maybe you can make. Write the next Captain America or Marvel movie or something. You know, maybe that's what they're bidding you for. Uh, listen, you know, you're from Norway, and you know, it, it. Whatever it is at the moment, I'm wondering your sense of this. But you know, when it comes to books, TV shows, movies, there's you know, Scandi cool we keep hearing about, and, and and as soon as something is described as Scandinavian, and I know Scandinavia is a massive place, and it has all these different countries in it, let alone regions, but it seems to be Scandinavia is very cool at the moment. I mean, is that just our problem, people looking in, or or do you have a sense of that part of the world you're in now is very much looked at, and we're all wondering what's going to come next from it? Well, I, I definitely feel that people are more curious about Norway or, or Scandinavia or whatever we are doing, which is great. You know, I, I don't feel we're particularly cool <laughs> here, you know, and uh, and also, but that's also the thing, you know, that you always compare, like if you're from Ireland or from Britain, you compare like all the movies that you make with the best movies that we make in Scandinavia. You know, mm. And you feel, oh, they're so much better, and vice versa. So okay. uh, the so grass is always greener. Grass is always greener, and uh, and like the bad movies don't travel. You know, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so, uh, so you only point. see the good ones. Yeah. But uh, but definitely, we we're enjoying that people are more curious about what we're doing here because that wasn't always the case. Yeah. Okay. Last question. I told them I'd only keep you 15 minutes and we've gone over 20. So let me roll on. But finally, you wrote a movie I really liked that I don't think got the attention it deserved. And it starred my fellow countryman, Gabriel Byrne, uh, Louder Than Bombs. I, I, I thought that was a, a great movie about the family overcoming the the trauma of, of losing a wife and mother. She was a war photographer. I, I wonder, did, were you disappointed that that movie didn't, you know, we were talking about successes, that that movie didn't travel further than it should have maybe? Well, it, uh, yes, you know, but obviously when you, re- when you do the synopsis like you just did, it's obvious why it wasn't a blockbuster, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> when it's about war photography and overcoming grief, it doesn't... Uh, but we didn't expect that. And, and okay. it was actually the first movie I wrote uh, with Joachim Trier that was in main competition in Cannes, and, uh, and it did quite well selling all over the world but because it was english language people expected something more from okay. it i guess but uh but uh yeah i would have loved that movie to be bigger in the u.s and english language uh world especially but also maybe it's because i'm a bit nostalgic about that time when mm-hmm. a drama about the family could be a mainstream movie which is sure. not the case anymore you know it, yeah. uh, that's not the landscape i hear you well look that was a great movie and i would urge people to re-watch louder and bombs but more so i would urge people to go and see the innocence this friday because it is a remarkable gripping disturbing and downright great piece of cinema Iskill, it was a real pleasure to chat to you thank you very much thank you
Director Iskal Vogt there talking to me about his creepy but wonderfully intriguing new movie, The Innocence, which is in cinemas this very Friday. That's the 20th of May. Up next, Pat Fitzpatrick, a.k.a. Reggie from the Black Rock Road on his favourite movie. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movies Show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone about their favourite movie. Pat Fitzpatrick is a well-known journalist, media contributor and author whose books include the unfortunately named 101 Reasons Why Cork is Better Than Dublin. And in recent times, he has found fame and infamy with his online character, Reggie from the Black Rock Road, who is a pretentious millionaire from indeed the Black Rock Road. And such was the popularity of that character that Pat did a stage show with Reggie in the Everyman Cork earlier this year called An Evening with Reggie. I've known Pat a long time and think I may have been the first person to ever put him onto news talk about 15 years ago. Let's Let's not get into that now. He's here to talk about his favourite movie. Pat, how are you? Very good, John. Good to catch up again. And you're right, you were. It was yeah. Tom Dunn long, long time ago. There you go. There you go. Retainers and all that. But anyway, let's not get into that, as I say. So listen, I love this because I was chatting to you earlier in the week and the best reaction whenever someone talks about their favourite movie and they go, you know what? Forget about all those other ones I mentioned. The movie I've watched the most and I love the most is actually Bum Bum Bum. And you had that with this movie. So tell our listeners what it is and why, if you would. It's Where Eagles Dare. So anyone who's been flicking channels around Christmas time, if anyone flicks channels around Christmas time anymore, will remember <laughs> Where Eagles Dare was a, a kind of a, a World War II blockbuster movie made in 1968 with Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood. And it was set in a a German castle during World War Two, um, and the, I won't go. I won't give all the plot because it's a bit. It's a nice twisty plot, and there's mm-hmm. kind of there's a, some very good twists in it. And there's Richard Burton keeps changing sides. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, it turns out I'm a German spy, and I'm not Smith. I'm Schmidt. So it was a bit simple <laughs> on that level, um, but it had all really good villains. Um, but mainly, it was just I suppose it was a moment in time as well where you didn't have any options in terms of what you watched. And in the 70s, when I would have been watching it, like a lot of kids of my age, I guess, we were really interested in World War II. Um, and you could be interested in World War II then as well, because it was before things like Schindler's List and, and Life is Beautiful, where the real horrors of World War II, they weren't really talked about. It was just one army against another, whereas yeah. the Germans lost. They weren't the worst, you know. Um, and that has a lot of this in it. They've got a Gestapo guy with a very kind of elaborate makeup and blonde hairdo to show that he's the bad guy. But... Generally, they're both just soldiers fighting a fight. But there's, you know, there's great daring doing it. Um, there's a bit of romance. Richard Burton's kind of funny because he doesn't really act. Um, he just kind of growls angrily at Clint Eastwood. And Clint Eastwood shoots everyone. He, like, he shoots the population of Bavaria, I'd say, in <laughs> one scene in a turret where they're trying to escape. But it's got unlikely escapes and like incredible stunts, which apparently were the real thing done on top of a cable car going up to this what's known as Schloss Adler, but it's actually shot, I think, in both Austria and, and Bavaria, obviously post-war in the 60s. Um, but like it, it was real and it's it's thrilling. And it's, you know, it's one of those, of course, it's sentimental for me because I, that's one of the movies that I watched when I was young and, lo- and watched it every year for Christmas for 10 years, I'd say. Yeah, and because I, like you, probably saw it some Christmas as well and still has a fond place in my heart. Like, the castle is great. It's very labyrinthine or whatever that word yeah. is. And it's shot on location and it feels very real. 
it does feel real. And, you know, they're in kind of cosy pubs in the forecourt because they're pretending to be German paratroopers. Mm. Um, there's seven of them, parat- I think, or five of them paratrooped in, parachuted in, and they're pretending to be German. So, But it does feel very authentic um, and, and kind of cosy at the start where they're, you know, they're just kind of ambling around this fairly pretty looking German castle. But the point is that the, the Germans have captured an American general who has the secrets of the D-Day invasion. So they're trying to get him out before the Germans get the, the secrets from him. So that's the kind of the, the, the plot driver in it. But yeah, it is. And you're right, the castle is a character in it almost. And it's really gothic. And it has that kind of foreboding look. And it all really happens there, pretty yeah. much. The whole thing happens there. And you know, nowadays with any movie set in the 60s or 70s or even 80s to a certain extent, one has to almost you know, sense check it now in terms of it being out of step with the times. I mean, you mentioned, you know, that this was a time before we had a sense of just the horrors of war or certainly they weren't, you know, uh, depicted on screen, but does it still pass mustard in that way or are there, are well, there any problems? There are two women, um, female characters in it who like, you know, who are, who are there. I, I, I... Um, one, I won't actually give a description that somebody said, but you know, she looked. One of them looked like just a kind of a support for a set of boobs. Um, so they, and the other one, I was watching the trailer there actually, just as we were chatting. And Richard Burton, he's having a relationship with her, and he just says, "Take your clothes off." And she goes, "What? Just take them off." You know, it was one of those "kiss me, you fool" sort <laughs> of things. Uh, and I think, in fairness, I think that was actually because he was, you know, it, it, it was part of the plot. He wasn't actually kind of coming on to her. But yeah, the women get a fairly fairly backward kind of sense of supporting thing in it. Now, usually it's a war scene as well. Um, But, you know, there's two very pretty blonde women in it, as was was in all these things, like Ice Cold and Alex, all these movies had a pretty woman in them, even though I'd say most of the soldiers at the time probably never saw pretty women. Indeed, indeed. And tell me this, because I I always like to ask people, particularly mothers and fathers, have you shown this to your own kids yet? Mine? Yeah, not yet. Um, My son would be too young to get mm-hmm. it and i'm not sure he's into that kind of war movie um I, you know i i suppose if you look at what they're used to i mean star wars for him feels a bit um old school do you know yeah. what i mean the oh, special I effects in that i think given what they're used to um yeah. feel a bit old school i think if he was a bit older because the Yes, the kind of the shoot me ups and all that are big in this, but the plot is the thing, and you need to get the plot to get the movie and to feel the suspense mm. uh, and to feel the confusion. And it is confusing. Um, that you know, and without that, I just and it's long. That's the other thing, of course. Movies back then, you know, it, it's it's coming up to the over the two hours mark, and there's there's plenty of kind of sweeping shots and all that. So I I don't think he'd have the concentration for this dish. Yeah. Okay. There's no songs. He likes the song. Yeah, fair enough. It needs a bit of an encanto in there. Yeah. Well, where Eagles Dare, it is a fantastic war movie. Uh, Clint Eastwood, who doesn't act, just squints, as someone said. But That's uh, right. <laughs> fi- fine by me. Uh, where Eagles Dare, the favourite movie of Pat Fitzpatrick. Pat, I mentioned Reggie at the start yeah. of the show, or at the start. You're just going to have to, you know, it was big in Cork, as the fella says. But just for other people who might have escaped it, Reggie, I, I said he's a pretentious millionaire. Tell us quick what he is and, and how it all came about for you. It was part of another series you were doing Ask Audrey, right? Yeah, so it all started, I was doing a kind of a spoof agony ant column in the examiner called Ask Audrey uh, where various quartet characters would write into this Audrey person and she replied, you know, jokey. And one of the characters was Reggie 
he was a minor character and it really um, that didn't feature but he, he was a, a millionaire on the Black Rock Road I've heard him and it's probably fair to say he's Cork's answer to Ross O'Carroll Kelly um, down to the point of being on the Black Rock Road which is much nicer than Dublin's Black Rock Road of course but, um, <laughs> but then we were recording it for a radio station as a podcast Red FM here in Cork and Reggie was one of the characters that I did every now and again and, and then the pandemic came along we were all stuck at home and I just one day I just stuck the camera in my face and did a short sketch as this Reggie person complaining that they were opening inter-county travel and just warning people from Tipperary and Limerick not to bother coming to Cork <laughs> and it just took off and it was one of those things um and you know it, it's, it's a Twitter it's a Twitter presence and then Facebook and Instagram it's kind of taken off and then off the back of that I've just uh, about a month ago finished uh, 13 nights in the Everyman in Cork which is great as an evening with Reggie and tell me this like to make the leap you know to do 13 nights in a theatre that must you know you're just sitting at home doing albeit funny sketches into a you know a camera on your computer or whatever but then suddenly to be you know having lighting and crew yeah, people well, I mean the key was that I just I chose I saw Pat Kieran who I actually know from a long way back He's like one of the he's leading theatre director and in Cork Adorka, I don't know if you've heard of that theatre company in Cork. So he's like, they're a, they're a kind of, a, so you'd call it kind of avant-garde theatre company in a way. So I was amazed that he was interested in doing something with Reggie, but he came in and then brought a team in with him of set designers, costume people. The Everyman were fantastic. We had very good audiovisual stuff. So, you know, I couldn't have done any of that. And I think the key thing he brought as well is how do you take something from, a two minute 20 sketch which is the limit of a video on twitter mm. and turn it into a one hour evening live yeah. show and he understood the theatricality of that and how you had to mix it up and you couldn't just sit there telling stories which is what the sketches are on, on video so but it's been great and, and, and i i don't want to give anything away but there's there's kind of we're, we're starting talks about doing another one next year with, with wow. a kind of a broader because this one's quite cork appeal um but this one and might still go to Dublin, but the idea is with the next one that it would have a broader appeal. So I insult people from other counties as well. Um, <laughs> Dundalk, I believe, will get a right going. Oh dear, let's <laughs> let, let's keep rolling. Uh, tell me this then. You mentioned the appeal of Cork, uh, rightly or wrongly. You know, you are. Mr. Cork, and it's become a big part of your work and life. I mentioned the book, 101 Reasons Why Cork is Better Than Dublin. Uh, You know, you were named Cork Person of the Month recently. I saw that as well, which I'm sure (laughs) thrilled you, no doubt. (laughs) But but isn't it funny that, or maybe it isn't, maybe you think like Reggie, sure, why wouldn't it be? But it's strange that Cork has become such a big part of your work and life. Well, I moved here. I, I think it was because I started doing it soon after I moved back from Dublin. Mm. Um, and I kind of had abstract notions. I probably didn't even particularly, wasn't particularly fond of Cork. Moved back to Cork anyway. And then you kind of come back and you realize, geez, it is quite an insular place and full of people who view everything through the lens of Cork. Uh, and you could have great fun with that, obviously. Mm. And it just happened that, you know, and I suppose the other thing is, Cork has a name, rightly so, you know, around the rest of the country for being self-obsessed and full of itself. And why wouldn't we be? But, you know, then so I could play on, make a play on that. I mean, obviously, yeah. the book, 101 Reasons Cork is Better Than Dublin, is a play on that. <laughs> in the title, um, you know, so, so that's, but that's, uh, you know, I, I've also kind of realised I'm getting to the end of it. Right. Of wanting to do the show next year. I, you know, it's not going to be as Cork-based because Reggie needs to get out in the boat, I think, more. Um, yeah. I love doing Cork stuff. I think it's great that you, I think you kind of have to do the stuff you know 
like it's the jokes work because they're local, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I have we got a press release in this? Am, am I we about to hear Corkman getting tired of Cork? Well, obviously, not, you know, but Corkman evangelizing and bringing Cork to the rest of the world in a way that's digestible for people who don't understand, for instance, a joke about Glasheen Road necessarily. But every every town has a Glasheen Road. In, in its own yeah. so it's about explaining that. Okay, so e- evangelical Corkman may be tiring of evangelizing yeah. about Cork. Yeah, well, that's a fair enough yeah. assumption. Well, listen, uh, we hope to see you on the road with Reggie and more things. You can read Pat, you can hear him. He has many other books as well, not just ones about Cork. He wrote a great one about uh, parenting and all sorts of things. You can find more about Pat on Pat patfitzpatrick.com is that right pat well i you know the easiest place is if you're looking patfitzpatrick.com is the website but i would go to at ask audrey like for the reggie stuff um okay. on twitter instagram and facebook at ask audrey like is the name there reggie blackrock road is the the handle anyway if you're looking it up and that's where you'll probably find most of my stuff these days okay a man of many handles pat fitzpatrick is <laughs> my favorite movie is where eagles there thanks very much thanks john take a look down there at the foot of the castle Dobermans. Yeah. Dobermans, a guard tower, and a wire fence. Fences can be cut or climbed, Lieutenant. I doubt if that one can be climbed. It's probably got around 3,000 volts running through it. If I'm not mistaken, Major, that's an army barracks over there. No mistake, Lieutenant. This is the headquarters of the Wehrmacht Alpine Corps. Oh, swell. If you've got any other surprises, I think I ought to know about them. I thought you knew, Lieutenant. Why do you think we're not dressed as German sailors? Training troops come and go all the time. What are six new faces among 600 new faces? Look, Major, this is primarily a British operation. I'm an American. I don't even know why the hell I'm here. Yes, Clint Eastwood, not knowing why the hell he was there. But thank God he was in the great Where the Eagles Dare. The favourite movie, as chosen by Pat Fitzpatrick. And my thanks to Pat. That is it for this week. Next week, I'll be talking to the cast of Stranger Things. Yes, the Netflix hit series, which is returning for its fourth series. So I'm looking forward to that. Just time to thank Anne-Marie Kane, who helped out on the show this week, as she does every week. Also want to remind you that you can get in touch with me at any stage. John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5 p.m. on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6 p.m. right here on Newstalk. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and have a safe week ahead. Take care.